Well, there goes August. I hope you had a chance for some relaxation in the last few weeks and are now refreshed and raring to go for the autumn. Or for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure you're looking forward to your summer. Which reminds me, if you are a regular listener or reader of our reports, you'll know that although we are based in the UK, our reach at Instec is now global. In fact, Australia is our fourth most active audience, 24 in case you're wondering. And if you're in the UK, you are still, of course, part of our largest audience by geography, but the US is not far behind, making up almost one third of our listeners and members. Anyway, enough about all of us and on to this week's guest. Nal Barton is without doubt one of the stars of the InsurTech movement in the UK with a really fascinating story to tell. The blood of insurance flows through his veins. Nile is an underwriter by background, but a number of years ago, he grew frustrated with how insurers were supporting their clients and struck out to launch his own business or businesses. Risk was founded in 2015, and in a relatively short time, Nile and his team have gone through a journey with more peaks and troughs than most people would want to experience in a lifetime. From crowdsourced fundraising to building their own in-house technology, pivoting, changing CEO, surviving COVID lockdown, launching a lobbying group for UK insurtechs and working through personal health issues, we cover a huge amount in this interview. I'm also very grateful to Niall for sharing his very personal experience with advice to all founders, which you can hear as a bonus section at the very end. Definitely worth hanging in there for that. Now, if this is the first time you've come across us at Instech London, well, I'm delighted you've made it this far. Please keep listening. I'm Matthew Grant, and with Robin Mertens and our growing team, we are helping insurers and technology companies demystify the technology, innovation, and companies, and reveal the people that are getting great stuff done around the world. Find us at www.instech.london or contact Robin or myself via LinkedIn or any of us by email, hello at instech.london. If you've got something you want to tell the world or just figure out what is going on, we might be able to help. Now, here's Niall. Niall, it's a delight to talk to you today. Uh, I've been really interested in following your progress with risk since, uh, since 2015. You're one of the early insurtech companies and really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that. But uh, just before we jump into that, just a bit about your own background. Uh, I think it's often really fascinating when people like yourselves have come out of insurance. You've had a career as an underwriter with Faraday. You worked at Markel and Catco, done various other things, and are now you know, started to launch your own business. So really looking forward to hearing more about that. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Have you refreshed after your recent holiday as well? I am. Thank you, Matthew. Up in Scotland as well. So yes, very much so. Thank you. Yeah, Scott, you actually even had better weather than the rest of the country, I think. And uh, we've had to turn the video off because the Wi-Fi has not been that great. But uh, I did see beforehand that you are sitting in your railway carriage for our recording. So I've done recordings in cars, in uh, in vans, uh, and, of course, in our nightclub. I don't think we've done one in a railway carriage yet. It doesn't look as though yours has gone very far for a long time. You'd think having commuted for years, I wouldn't want to set foot inside a railway carriage again. But, no, we bought these railway carriages uh, on, which are on the beach down on the south coast, and it's our sort of hideaway holiday place. Um, so shameless publicity for anybody uh, who wants to rent it um, outside of season. Uh, but yeah, and it's very restful, uh, very good for uh, for for working. So uh, yeah, very happy to be with you today. Good. Well, we've put many things in the episode notes. I don't think you've yet put anybody's holiday homes rental, but we'll be sure to give you a link. <laughs> Sorry about that. Fascinating to hear you, know, you this move from insurance. I guess these days I hesitate to say safe job and insurance, but you know, quite a bold move after a career in a conventional world to go off and 
launch or launch and co-found a new business. So what was it that motivated you to start up Risk? Mm-hmm. It's been a rather expensive hobby for me in a way. Uh, the first one I, I set up after I left Faraday and, and Berkshire was uh, Oxygen, which was, uh, you know, a, a brokerage and an uh, underwriting agency. We had some great successes, but it was um, not a great end because we, we sold the business and it ended rather ignominiously. And um, unfortunately, the cost was for really for the shareholders, but it was all the staff were looked after the clients claim, you know, everybody was looked after. But it was a painful end for me and I think a few other people. But I felt I needed to get back onto the saddle and try again. While I'd been a, a non-exec on a few businesses, ranging from you know, insurance brokers to um, ILS companies, it was watching what was going on in the fintech world and the, the likes of Monzo and Revolut bringing a delightful experience to their customers. But I thought, I think that really, really is long overdue in the insurance world. I thought if I could assemble the right team, I'm an insurance guy. I needed a tech and user experience guy, so I was lucky enough to meet Darius Kumana. We built a prototype, took it to Andrew Rear at Munich Re Digital Partners, and he said, look, this is what you're producing as a customer experience, multi-product, uh, is exactly what Digital Partners is all about. So uh, they they said, you know, we'll back you uh, for the UK, Europe, and America to be an MGA on acting on our paper. And that sort of got us started and enabled us to go and raise money uh, and, and on we go. So if I'd known then how much hard work it was going to be, um, you know, I hope I would have still cracked on. But, it, you know, it is an enormous amount of stamina you need to get something going from scratch. Well, I'm just going to pause our recording here for a second to explain what Niall is referring to here. Because Risk was originally set up to act as an MGA, the company could underwrite insurance, but it needed an insurance or reinsurance company to provide its underwriting capital. This is the paper that Niall refers to. But to build a business at scale and quickly also means raising investment, which is usually an entirely different source of funds and used for building the technology, hiring people and such like. We'll come back to the sources of investment funds for Risk later on in our chat. For now, back to Nile. With some lucky breaks, a few bumps in the road, risk is powering along really well now, and I'm, I'm you know, really delighted with it. I look back on those days in, in very big companies as being, you know, a long, long time ago, and I've learned how to operate really much more as a tech business than as an insurance business. And, and my goodness, those two worlds normally are very, very different. I described in the early days as bit like sort of oil and water, and how could they coexist? Insurance businesses were not geared up to be able to tolerate failure, whereas a, a technology business absolutely is in terms of, you know, the different versions of software that, you know, get rolled out to fix bugs. It's something we all see now with our phone, with its releases, every, you know, every every few weeks, but it just an insurance that was just a complete anathema at the time. Well, you survived. Uh, you survived six years, which I think is an indication that you've probably, you've statistically got a good chance of continuing to survive. And it has been, yeah, it's been really interesting watching what's happened. You've pivoted a little bit in that time. I know you had some challenges earlier on, uh, you know, lobbying the UK government for, you know, it's a recognition of what MGAs are doing, I think, from some tax point of view for investors. So it would be good to come back and, and talk about that. But um, just before we go on, in, in terms of risk itself, just so anybody who's not come across you is aware of that, 
Can you talk just about what is the, the proposition mm. that you're offering? We describe risk as a, as a digital first insurance business and working with, with leading automotive brands to shape the future of their customers' mobility and insurance protection experiences. So we're very much a B2B to C player. So working with the likes of BMW and, and uh, RAC and others, I describe it as B2B to C with a small B, a slightly bigger B and then a very big C. It is absolutely about the customer right in the middle of our proposition and the customer experience. And that's, you know, obviously appeals to the end customer, but it also appeals to the partner in the middle, the likes of a BMW or another OEM, because they want to keep their customers in their brand. We're focused on the, on the mobility space because there's just so much potential we see for us in that area. We've looked at other areas like uh, telecoms, banking, and we just we felt we were being spread too thinly. So, you know, focus on focus on this area and, and who knows where it may develop from there. We started as a B2C proposition. You know, we, we loved what Darius had produced with the team and the customers loved it. It was incredibly well received on the you know, Apple store. But it was just going to cost a huge amount of money to build a brand. And so pretty quickly, A, we said, you know, this isn't for us. And B, we were lucky. We were introduced to BMW at a time when they were looking for a radically different proposition for the way that mobility was changing in terms of car data, ownership vehicles and ownership you know, business models. Everything was changing in their world and their insurance product wasn't changing. We were introduced to them. We popped up at the right time and, you know, the rest is history for us. So you have to have a bit of luck occasionally. The word which Robin's very, very keen has been great at really educating the market about is, you know, embedding insurance. And so our product is absolutely about embedding the insurance into the process. It is something we believe very, very strongly in. So, yeah, uh, that's where we are at the moment. And, um, you know, in the UK at the moment, and we'll be looking at actively working on some international opportunities at the moment. Excellent. Uh, and so, Nalin, there, you just mentioned OEM in passing, which, of course, is original equipment manufacturer, but it's a, a term used a lot in the auto industry for uh, actually what is embedded finance or embedded insurance. As you said, yeah, we had a very successful launch of our report on embedded insurance, a lot happening in that space. Uh, you'd also be glad to know, well, I guess you've now survived it, so maybe you would have been glad to know, had you known this a few years ago, that I was listening to an excellent podcast called How They Built It by Guy Raz. You can come across that. But they talked to founders of successful businesses, and, and they're saying that 50% of successful businesses have gone through a pivot. So it's almost a rite of passage. Mm. So I, I think something to, <laughs> yeah. to, to celebrate having done that. And, of course, risk is W-R-I-S-K, just so everyone knows, because there are different versions of risk out there. I know it was a different proposition originally, and I think there are probably different reasons why you did it. But what was really interesting was seeing your part of your funding. I know it wasn't all your funding, but going through Cedars, the crowdfunding mm. platform. And of course, you're still up there. And I, I looked recently and you've got close to 2000 people that, that, um, invested in you th- through that. Uh, just could you talk a bit about the original motivation for doing that? Cause I, I know you had other sources of investment and otherwise there was, that was a meaningful contribution. It wasn't by no means mm. all of the investment. No. It's important to stress that, you know, you, you, one may read about some textbook means of raising money and you do your SES round and seed round and then off you go into series A. Uh, it, it often isn't like that. And it's really hard work raising, raising money. And I remember one, 
investment uh, VC telling me, telling me, don't worry if it looks a little bit messy behind the scenes, um, which was very reassuring. And and in the in the journey, we you know, we raised money from some tactical investors, some strategic investors, private investors for what we called our super seed round because we knew it was going to be quite a big round and was watching how Monzo and Revolut had raised money on on Cedars and Crowdcube uh, and had not only raised the money, but had built a great following from that. And so we talked to Cedars and said, yeah, let's give it a go. They hadn't done InsureTech before. A lot of work initially to build uh, a deck to make a compelling video and answer a lot of questions that came through from prospective investors in the in the early stages. It's called you know, uh, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding for a reason. It is the crowd watching you. So how you answer those questions, how quickly, how accurately, uh, how honest you are about you know the things you don't know, are things that the crowd watch very carefully. And so if they are all going to put in ten quid, a hundred pounds, a thousand pounds, it's the momentum that you build up in terms of your responses, particularly for a new sector, which they hadn't come across in Shortech. So while people were, I think, most of the, many of those investors were in, as frustrated as we were with how personal insurance was was conducted, so they wanted to see a new way. They still wanted to test us pretty pretty significantly about our hypothesis. So it was hard work that first one, and but I'm really de- you know, delighted with the following we got. As you say, we're now got about two thousand investors. We are incredibly proud of of those investors, and they have bought us. We've hired people who were investors we've used 2000 people for testing out versions of our software and a number of other things it was more than just re- receiving those investment funds so I, i'm a huge believer in it i'm delighted that a number of other insurtechs have, have gone that route oh, i'm always happy to help them give them a bit, a bit of two penny worth of guidance as to what we learned and things to avoid it's a great british success story, you know, both Cedars and Crowdcube, uh, as, as a means of tapping into retail investment funds and and raising money for some really great, great, great businesses. And so, yeah, huge fan. It was really interesting to see how that evolved. I know and you sort of touched on it there that you know, one of the reasons you did this originally was to actually get some of your early clients on the basis that if people actually invested in you, mm. even, you know, even if it was only five, ten pounds, a hundred pounds, they'd actually be more likely to or potentially become one of your customers. And at that point, you touched on about why you then ended up doing the pivot or switching what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, this, I think it's true for a lot of people, isn't it? With MGAs, you need to be able to really significantly scale up the distribution. And it's very hard to break in when there's a lot of money being spent by the big insurers on on branding. And then they've also got the aggregator sites here as as well, so that was that basically your experience. It was just uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We, it was. It would have been a mountain to climb that. And also, at the same time, as I say, we were we were introduced to BMW, so we suddenly realised that actually, the, you know, those are the brands who've got the the brand magnetism. They're going to attract customers, so work with them and their marketing rather than building your own. So there was a little bit of grieving for a few few days or weeks that the risk brand was not going to be right front and central. You get over that. <laughs> where the money is and, and just before we move off cedars the other thing i like about cedars uh, i don't know if you've tracked your uh your, your share price but they've got a secondary market which is really unusual for a crowdfunding platform and every month they mm. open the market up 
Uh, and you'll be pleased to know, not, not that it was a very meaningful amount. I think it was probably in the double digits. That I actually invested in some risk shares in the secondary market just to really understand how it worked. They sort of do a sort of estimate of what your share price is, but it's gone up since you launched now. Ooh. So your investors can actually now sell their shares and make some money on it. I don't watch that. Perhaps I should. Well, hopefully on that basis, they'll <laughs> hang on to yeah. them for more That's upside. That's good. Yes, yeah. please do. Please <laughs> do. cut their losses. You heard Niall mention our report on embedded insurance a few minutes ago. Now you can still get this for free from our website, www.instec.london. That's in the report section. Uh, we profiled about 50 companies in there. If you haven't found it already, it's definitely worth a look. And please do tell us what you think. Now, back to my questions to Niall. About the same time you set up Risk, you also set up InsureTech UK, which was hmm. uh, an organization for helping insurtechs. I mean, I remember the time you were quite focused on lobbying to the government about some of the, mm. some of the ways they were treating or helping or not helping, I guess. Can you just talk a little bit about what the original aspirations were for that and how that's evolved over the last five years? This was really just a, a group of us, four or five of us, who just said, look, you know, we're, we're, we're minnows in between these behemoths on the broking side sometimes and, and the insurer side. And, we needed to have a voice. We didn't, you know, nobody was insistent on, on just creating yet another association. We needed to have a voice, particularly with the government, who were very keen on promoting fintech. And insurtech wasn't there to be seen. And, and we at risk had a particular issue in terms of the uh, HMRC, the tax people, as to how they were treating tax uh, tax breaks for, for new businesses, for, for investors. And out of the blue, we got a bad call and said, and it was an incredibly frustrating process to who to ask which association would be able to lobby for us. And we said, well, there ain't one for all of these brand new businesses. So we formed uh, InsureTech UK. We're at about 100, and, I don't know, 110 firms or something who are, who are, who are members. It's just representative that London is a fantastic place to set up an insure tech. Uh, there's a great infrastructure. There's a great collaboration. There's great support for each other. Uh, and it's the best of the uh, almost like the subscription market that works in the London market. So I played my part. Uh, I, I'm not on the council anymore. It was taking quite a lot of my time. But I, I'm intensely proud of it. And also, you know, it sort of coexists with your organization, which is for me, watching how you've grown your business and is 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 amazing. And and we're facing into different areas. And this InsureTech UK literally just represents as a lobbying group, really, for for the InsureTechs. Whereas yours is, is so much more about communicating to the outside world about what's going on. So I, th- I think they're, they coexist very well, and um, it's just helped secure London as the hub, really global hub for, for insure tech business, as far as I'm concerned. I think most recently, probably the last six months, which is particularly impressive during this sort of lockdown times, you start to see some decent sizes of investment coming out, you know, most mm. recently with, with Flock, with Zigo, um, yeah, Tractable. Really. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all now starting to sort of show up on in the in the world. But, I mean, as you mentioned, the, yeah, the role of government and taxation and funding, I mean, the we do get a bit frustrated in the UK to some extent that we don't get the same kind of support as you know, places like Germany do or uh, Australia, where the government is putting money directly into mm. innovation. But of course, the tax breaks are actually quite, there are some quite generous tax breaks. You mentioned SCIS and the ZIS, the enterprise uh, yeah. scheme that does de-risk us a little bit for the early investors. Uh, but have you found you know, that initial motivation for you to sort of try and 
uh, get the government to be a bit more flexible. Has that has that actually changed things over time? Are they now looking a bit more favourably at early stage companies? I think we've raised the profile of it. Personally, I'm not going to wait for handouts you know, for the government. We've got to earn our investment funds really from from traditional investors now. I think there would be some areas where there would be it would be great if there would be some grant type funding, non-dilutive funding for specific areas. But if they can, through EIS and SEIS, get us to sort of up on our feet a little bit, uh, then that's enough. Uh, that's enough, for, I think, for us. We've got to then, we've got to prove our worth much against any other tech, tech business. I, I, I don't, I'm not expecting handouts. I initially thought maybe one could have some fund that was, that was founded by the incumbents. I don't think that would work and be, you know, fraught with politics. So I feel we're fine in the UK in terms of, you know, the support we get to the government. No complaints. I suppose incumbents, I mean, they are investing through their own corporate venture capital firms anyways. But I think you're right. I think if you allow the investors to make the choices, then they're putting their own money in place. And it's probably the most effective way to... um, resource companies and and now and just generally then when you look around there other organizations that you know are, are there any you'd call out as ones that you particularly admire or you know things to learn from for people hmm. i'm intrigued and uh very respectful of what what jaguar land rover doing in terms of re- a radical um rethink of their strategy um i think it's called reimagine where you know jaguar was going to be an ev brand only you know, from from 2025 with some radical designs these motor manufacturers are having to think so fast move so fast is in a changing world in terms of uh, ev maybe hydrogen and business models ev that's electronic vehicle in the insurance space i think one to watch is probably abakai a uh, very high quality team, uh, very proactive. I just put them as one to watch. I mean, there's some great businesses out there. Some of the ones you mentioned, you know, uh, these businesses are, I think will do really well. And as I say, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by um, what uh, Mark and Jamie are doing at Abakai. Yeah. And they've got the, the sort of experience as well from the industry to be able to bring to that. And, you know, I guess it always helps with investors where you've had a business before and they know they're backing an experience. That's right team um, and then you, you mentioned at the beginning there about the, the technology and the sort of choices you make uh, when Jared Lee was talking the other day from what is now um, Supersede he mentioned that if you're building a business that is purely technology you should build your own technology we both agree that if you're building an MGA then yeah, sometimes it makes sense to go and work with somebody that's actually producing systems specifically for MGAs and quite a few new technology companies out there but when you're sort of making the choices and, and working with Darius on your own technology, I mean, how, how did you decide you know, what to build, how to build it, and sort of how to know what the right technology was to work with? Well, there are certain uh, features that you can buy in a commodity. So we use Intercom, we use Stripe. Uh, but, but where it's going to really make a difference for the end customer and or your partner, I think you've got, I feel you've got to build it yourself, particularly if you want to build value within the business. Yes, you know, build it all ourselves. There are certain components which we haven't built, which we're looking at maybe partnering with certain people um, rather than building as ourselves if we want to go, you know, move a bit faster. But um, at the core, I think, has got to be, you know, your platform. And we've had, I think, some very high quality engineers, everybody who looks under the hood, 
or kicks the tires, mixing my metaphors, you know, uh, says we've got, you know, we have got very, very good technology. So, and scalable. So I'm happy where we are, frankly, in terms of, the, you know, the quality of the, the platform we've, we've built, the quality of the partners that we're, you know, we're working with. That doesn't come by accident. No, and I think it's one of the biggest challenges, you know, not just in new companies, but in established companies. I mean, often they're even harder for an established CEO to know, um, what, you know, what their CTO is telling them or, you know, what should they, they trust and what should they, they question. Mm. But now I think we've just had another first on the podcast because I occasionally get jets and dogs barking, but I, I think I heard, and I did have, you did kind of give me a hint on this, a, uh, the Merlin engine of a Spitfire in the background just a few minutes <laughs> you ago. Did. <laughs> you did. And I couldn't reach across to shut the window in, in, in time. And, um, whoever he is up there, he's obviously, well, she, he's having a great time. But yeah, that's right. Very charming. That's, it makes, yeah, an August, an August summer's day with a, an airplane in the yeah. background is delightful. What else should we be talking about? I mean, you, you've got visibility into this space, you know, very broadly. Well, what else do you think is worth of note? You asked me about my, the change in my role, and for other people who are in um, in a position of, as a founder, you know, you need a lot of stamina, tenacity, and uh, bits of luck. But also, I decided a couple of years ago that I should I should hand over the reins of the CEO role to somebody who I felt was better equipped than I. I'm an insurance guy, an old insurance guy, so scaling a technology business. Uh, and we are a technology business. We have a, a you know, regulated MGA subsidiary, but we are a technology business. Scaling that is, is a very different skill. And so I, I handed it uh, over to, to Namesh, uh, who's you know, worked at AOL uh, and uh, BuzzFeed in scaling their businesses. And so I'm now executive chairman and I can rove and knock on doors, uh, push, you know, develop initiatives in a much more uh, uh, sort of free-ranging way. And I just, I remember I've had a conversation with a couple of other people running InsureTechs who were nervous of making such a change. I, I do it. And just keep surrounding yourself with more and more people. We've had two or three fantastic people recently who are just lifting the organization already. And I'm loving having them on board. And hopefully I, I've still got value to bring. The label is just, not so relevant you shouldn't have to think you're going to be in the same role forever you know there are a small number of people who continue who can do that from founding a business with just two people to going on to staying being the ceo when it's you know a thousand people that's an amazing achievement but i think if you don't do that that's not i wouldn't say that's a failure at all it's just an acknowledgement of where you've got your skills and where you it might be better for the business to bring somebody else in who might do an even better job. Thank you for reminding me of my question because I, I was really interested in that. And I, and I suppose because executive chairman means you're still very active in the business. It's not a non-executive yeah, role. Right. You, you occasionally check in, although these days non-executives have got even, it's got pretty onerous responsibilities. So you still get a chance to influence the business. Yeah, I mean certainly we've seen companies that are yeah almost even earlier than risk or, or where the original founder has actually decided to bring in a CEO. I mean, I, yeah, very, very uh, admirable when people do that, when they know they might have the technology skills, they've got the idea, but, you know, mm-hmm. they just don't want to run the business. And, yeah, we've seen some very successful stories on that. Um, right. well, well, good. And then you, you touched on, you said some nice words about what we're doing at Instead London. We've been delighted to have you uh, as Risk, as a corporate member. We've had you on stage. You know, you sort of helped be part of what we are and, uh, you know, bring people along in the evenings. But, uh, it would just be, it'd be great just to hear you know, what it was that convinced you and your colleagues just to become a, a paid up 
member in these days. Mm. You know, money's always money's always tight in growing a business. I think every business goes through waves of bursts of self publicity, even personally on on LinkedIn. But it's impossible to do that, you know, consistently. Well, not impossible, but it's very difficult to to do that continually at the same pace. It's you know, and there's normally a reason why you're you're doing it. There's, there's a launch of this, or there's a raising capital, and so there's lots of activity. And then then you read, and then you think, oh, they've gone quiet a bit. I'm probably a bit like that with networking. When I did my MBA, a guy, one of our teachers said, at the beginning of the year, you need to work out the 10 people that you need to get to know that year. You go, oh, my God, that's very sort of deliberate. Who do I need to get to know? OK, and how are you going to get to know them? Right. You know, and so you, you set your path for doing so your networking. And these are the people you get to know because they're going to help you or help your business. And. I, I was conscious that risk had its burst of activities, but we probably hadn't done enough in inside the market and getting to know some of the other runners and riders. I had um, uh, through InsureTech UK, but I, you know, there are only a certain amount of hours in the day, and and so I was probably scoring low on the continuing to build my own network and also continuing to get risk profile in the London market, and so I thought. Bingo. Uh, having watched you and having looked, attended lots of your events, it was just we'd never actually bothered to sign up to be a member. I thought, let's do it. Um, and so we have. We've also actually just joined the MGAA. I so respect and admire what you have created and done for this this sector. My mistake probably not you know, being actually a paid up member a little bit earlier. Um it's also a bit expensive and we just raised some money so we can now pay for it. Just right time for us to to actually step up a little bit more. And so uh delighted to to join in. Also the your embedded uh, project was something that really caught our eye. We wanted to contribute to that because we've said you know that's exactly what we've been doing. You know, watching you and helping you develop your business, you know, with Glee. No, well, thank you, Nala. And, uh, uh, yeah, certainly expensive people in early stage, low revenue. Hopefully, I would never say we were cheap, though. So there's always a fine balance there. And uh, I, think, I think, you know, for us, it's important to be able to get the word out about organizations like you're doing yourselves and just help people understand the context. So that was the reason for the insurance report and yeah, five more reports. I don't know if you know, we brought on a head of research now from Rebecca's joined us from IHS Market. Uh, so we've only got a team behind her. So increasingly we're sort of helping people understand you know, what does it mean when you, when you look at you know, what organizations like you doing, what is B2B to see who's in that space mm-hmm. you'd look out for. And yeah, and, and there's so much good information and we sort of try and get that balance between the excitement, trying to avoid the hype and try and get the reality. So and I really appreciate your support and you've got a lot of respect in the market personally for the business. So that I think adds a lot of credibility. No. So, yeah, we'll be getting back together face to face again, seeing what everyone looks like after a year and a half hidden away in their uh, various locations around the world. Yeah. Great. Good. Well, no, unless there's anything else, I'll let you you get back to um, building the business. Thanks so much. As it turned out, that wasn't quite the end. After we'd finished, we were talking about the challenges for founders of businesses, and Nar revealed some of his own personal challenges over the last few years. I'd kept the recording on, and Nar was kind enough to let me share these with you at the end. There are two things I want to say. If there are other people who are founders or thinking about founding businesses, it's quite easy to be dazzled by the success of IPOs and SPACs and I think just to remember that, that, that these businesses have got to be sustainable so it is a marathon 
you know, not a sprint. And so with that, you've you've also, I think, got to look after yourself because it does take an enormous amount of stamina. We, we've got one investor who's very good, uh, very good non-exec at making sure that, you know, the founders are being looked after and their health's being looked after, actually, because it takes a it takes a huge strain. When we had the issue with um, being turned down by the tax authorities for our EIS, I can literally remember the moment when I my neck stiffened and with the shock and I, I got shingles from that. Last year was a sort of, you know, annus horribilis, I think, for everybody. Um, you know, we had to let go of some stuff. We had to take, you know, furlough stuff. Um, I got cancer in the middle of all of that. Managed to get through all of that. But, it, you know, it was, a, it was a really tough year. And you've got to, so I just keeping a balance, making sure that you've got, um, you know, supportive people around you and that it's a long game. It's not a short game. You have an enormous amount of fun, some fascinating, some incredibly inspiring moments, but some, you know, some dark, difficult moments as well, <laughs> terrifying moments. And, um, you know, important to, to recognize that. And so anybody who comes through that the other side and, and some of those businesses who, who people have gone on to build great businesses, absolute heroes. It, it takes its toll. And it's, as I say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. No, what I think is reminding you of that, and I'm, I'm glad you, you recovered through the year because I yeah, remember when you told me that was the situation, and you're certainly looking very healthy on screen <laughs> just now. Uh, so, yeah, very, a very important thing to take note of for all of us. Thanks, Niall. Very good to talk to you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.